Hello everyone and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by my co-host Gail Schimmel. Good morning everyone. Gail, how has your week been? So Fiona, uh, where do I start? Um, You know, I think one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is we want to give people a real insight into what it's like being a working writer and how one how one does the business of writing day in day out and the truth of the matter is I have hit a slight wall I think I talked last week about I'm finding the stage that I'm in harder than I usually find it for where I am in a book mm-hmm. and this week I've written 500 words which as you know is what I normally do as a minimum in a day I've right, done this week right. and I've actually realized I need to stop I need to regroup. I need to give myself a break. And I have decided I am not going to be writing, except the Katie Gale stuff. (laughs) I'm not going to be writing for the rest of this month. I'm going to give my brain a little chance to recover, figure out what it wants to do, and then have an edit that I need to do. So the Mm -hmm. next month or two will be on that edit. And then I will come back to this project and decide whether or not it's worth finishing. But it's been quite a process getting there, and I'm feeling half very good about this decision and half a bit, well, what am I going to do if I don't write? (laughs) (laughs) Um, What led you to hitting this wall? Did you read over stuff you'd written and you weren't happy with it, or were you just losing momentum? What actually happened? I'm not sure. It's not that I'm not happy with what I've written because last time in this project that I hit a wall, I reread it and I was, you know what? This is actually quite good. I must, I must carry on. I must finish it. Right. I'm, and I'm hoping that when I come back to it, that's what will happen. But I think I'm having a more existential crisis about what sort of writer I am and what I want to be writing. And I think I need to stop writing okay. to, to resolve that. Um, this has never happened to me before. And, I'll report back. I'll let you know what happens. What also I was thinking about as I was thinking about that this is what I wanted to talk about today. By the time this episode is, I will know how it's played <laughs> out. And I'm, right. anyone who wants to know how it's played out, contact us on social media and I'll tell you. But I almost feel like it makes me see there will be a solution because I know by the time I hear myself saying this again, mm-hmm. I will know what has happened. Okay. Well, that's a hopeful thought. Fiona, what about you? Well, yeah, I also don't have good news this week. Um, I thought I would because I thought I was going great guns on a project. I have a publisher who is almost ready to green light a new series that I'm writing and uh, looked at a sort of fairly detailed proposal and said, okay, let's see 10,000 words. Let's see how that looks. So I thought, okay, great. I know exactly where this is going. And I sat down and wrote the 10,000 words over many days. And I really thought it was going well because I was, each time when I came back to the screen, I was rereading what I'd written the week before. And I thought, oh, this is so smooth. This is so good. And I hit the 10,000 word mark. And I was actually looking forward to going back and editing myself Mm. and sort of seeing what I'd written. And I started that process this morning, and it is dire. I cannot believe the trap that I've fallen into. You know, you start thinking after a while that you're quite a seasoned writer who doesn't make those rookie mistakes. And I have said on panels, I think I've said here, that you do not start a book 
by introducing your character's backstory and familiarizing the… Start in the action. Yes, exactly. And I did not start in the action. I started with my character thinking about why she needed a change in her life, why things were not working for her, what was going wrong, what had gone wrong in the past, and why she now needed a change. And it was so boring. I was boring myself. (laughs) And it's the worst. It's, oh, big, big, big mistake. And I realized that I'm not ready to read over this thing and just sort of polish it up and send it off. It needs a comprehensive rewrite. We need to see her in crisis. We need to see the crisis happening in real time and then her coming to the realization that something needs to change. You cannot have the first even three pages happening inside your character's head. You just can't do it. At the risk of giving writing advice at the wrong end of the program, I often drop my first chapter. Once I'm finished the book, I often realize that that first chapter was a warm-up exercise. Right. And I drop it. And weirdly, don't even have to put it in anywhere else (laughs) because it was so unnecessary. (laughs) That is so interesting. Yeah, I think I'm I'm almost in the process of dropping my first chapter. Maybe see what happens if you start reading a chapter two. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, so, yeah, you know, it's not always smooth. Um, Bad news happens. And that's what we're trying to show, that uh, you have bad days and good days, and and the bad days are as much of the process as the good days. But uh, we all need to fill up the well somehow. So what have you been reading or watching or listening to this week? So unusually for me, I've been watching things, Mm. and I've had a bit of a thematic watching. I've watched two movies this week, and Fiona, I don't think you've ever heard me say that sentence before, and I Mm. don't know, it will be a long time before I say it again, but I have watched two movies this week, one on Netflix, Mm -hmm. um, which is a movie I've had to write it down, Life or Something Like It. I don't know why or how I stumbled on this movie, but I I think I thought I was going to be watching a series. (laughs) It's a 2002 movie with a very blonde... Angelina Jolie and I can't decide if she looks magnificent or really awful and it is a story about what what is our life's meaning what happens is she a psychic on a street predicts that she will die next Thursday oh my goodness and she starts reevaluating her life and does a whole lot of strange things because of it and at the end was quite disturbed by it and had to go back and look up what year it was made to put it in context because it's very much that old trap of a woman gives up her dreams to be with her man and that it's packaged as a good thing because she is now the more moral person and the more devoted to the good things in life and less obsessed with the superficial and less obsessed with glamour and achievement and more interested in having a good, wonderful life. Oh, and my goodness. Yeah, you know, it, and it reminded me a little bit of Greece, which as much as the songs have held out, the plot of Greece really is quite a disturbing thing to let your teenage <laughs> daughter watch these days. It is, yes. Um, and it gave me that feeling. And then... I watched another movie. My daughter's school had a movie night mm-hmm. and they played a movie called Soul, right. which is a wonderful animated movie about a man who on the day that he's suddenly, he's a musician and he suddenly gets his big break and then he dies. 
Okay. And he doesn't want to die. So his soul doesn't want to do what it's supposed to do. And his soul kind of gets lost in the, it, it won't follow the light and go up to where it's supposed to go. And what's lovely about the movie is it doesn't really speculate on where it's supposed to go. There is no religious overtone, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. except in so far as it, it says there's an afterlife and a before life. Mm-hmm. And because he doesn't go up to the afterlife, he kind of stumbles and falls and ends up in the before life with all the little baby souls. And mm-hmm. it's also about what is the meaning of life, what makes our lives valuable, but done in such a lovely, sweet, animated, but meaningful way. I came out of it really thinking about the meaning of my life. And I wondered why this movie isn't better known. And then I looked at the date of that. Mm-hmm. It's a 2020 release. Oh, got and swallowed by COVID. Got swallowed by COVID and none of us are aware of it. And just what a lovely movie and a perfect family movie that kids see on one level, adults on another level. So that one I can re- recommend. So Yeah, I think I'll, I'll give that one a go and I'll give the Angelina Jolie a skip because I don't really want to see a woman coming to a realization that <laughs> her true life lies in domesticity rather than I mean, a career and achievement. Okay. She kept her job, <laughs> but not the big glamorous dream she'd had and that she had made happen. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What um, about you? Yeah. So uh, I've been reading one of your recommendations, which is Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. And I'm absolutely loving it. And it, it is itself a romantic comedy. And I was trying to put my finger on what it does so well. And I think it is because it is not predictable. You've spoken on here before about how in romantic comedies, it's very difficult to sustain tension because you know from the beginning which two people are going to end up together. So, you know, where, where's the doubt? Where's the tension? Where's the investment coming from? And in this one, I'm almost at the end, and I am still not sure that the two main characters are going to end up together. I think maybe they're just having a kind of of interlude, which will change both their lives. I genuinely do not know. And that uncertainty is lovely. And at some point, I thought, oh, no, she's going to end up with a dependable co-writer who's been there all along. He's, you know, she'll have a fling with the, the glamorous singer, and then she'll go back to the boy who's been sitting opposite her all along. And now I don't think that's going to happen, and I still don't actually know. And for a romantic comedy to sustain that kind of genuine doubt is quite an achievement and it has kept me absolutely gripped. And Curtis Sittenfeld's writing, you can't go wrong. Our guest today is Kate Sidley. Kate is the author of The Agony Chef, which was a 2012 cookbook with fictional agony aunt columns side by side with recipes. Kate wrote 100 Mandela Moments in 2018, uh, a book for babies, which was part of the wonderful Book Dash project. It was called What Is It? Uh, Kate is a co-author with Gail Schimmel of the Katie Gale Cozy Mysteries. That's me. (laughs) That's you. (laughs) And um, Kate has written or co-written or ghost-written six projects, including The Elephants of Tula Tula. Kate, hello and welcome. We are so happy to have you in the studio. I'm so happy to be here. I've been enjoying your podcast and it's nice to be on this side of it. Thank you. Kate, I feel a little bit like I am interviewing myself in some ways (laughs) here because we have become so co-brained recently. How has your writing week been, Kate? 
My writing week, well, for me, every week is a writing week. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been good, actually. I've had a good week. I've been working, you'll be pleased to hear, on the fifth Julia Bird mystery in the Katie Gale series in, um, that we do together. And I think we've got a delivery deadline for about six weeks' time, so I've been very busy on that. So there you go. And I have another project that I'm working on at the same time, uh, which is one of my commissioned works, and that project is at a very um, administrative part of the process because uh, I'm getting ready to send that to the publisher and uh, looking at archival material and pictures and so on. Just something I don't always do. But anyway, it's been quite fun, but not much writing. So you choose the pictures for the book? Uh, in conjunction with somebody else, yeah. Okay. Yeah. In fact, with an archivist. Yeah. Are we allowed to talk about this project or is it one of those projects yeah, you're not, not allowed actually, to talk yeah. about? Okay. Yeah, probably not. So this so is one of the things, one of the <laughs> things that's fascinating about your work, but we'll look into <laughs> in more depth is that sometimes it's top secret. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask Fiona before I allow you to speak? Sorry to the, the part I don't know about Kate is her superhero origin story. And that mm. is what I want to know. I want to know how you started writing. What brought you to writing? What brought you to ghostwriting? Um, and, but, but where it started? Okay. I think that most writers started writing because they were readers. I think most of us came to writing through reading. I was always a, a bookish child. I loved reading even as a, as a young child. My mother was a big reader and she was in fact a book editor as one of her careers. And we, I grew up in the UK, um, in a sort of a smallish place outside of London. And I think probably typically of people of my type and age, that was what we did. Um, we played in the garden and we did our own kind of plays and we did our own circuses and we did our own, you know, we had Wendy houses and, you know, dressed the dog up and, you know, those kind of mild childhood activities because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have devices. Um, so I think there was a lot of kind of imaginative play that, uh, that we did at that sort of time. And I guess a lot of reading, I, I was very much steeped in that English tradition of Enid Blyton, The Wind in the Willows, A.A. A. Milne. Um, I was very drawn always to humor. Um, and I think Gail and I have actually discussed our shared love for Gerald Durrell mm -hmm. and my family and other animals and those kinds of books. And yeah, I guess that's where my writing life started. I mean, it was reading and, and sort of creative, imaginative play. Um, and then I was sort of good at English at school, you know, one of those sort of girls. And I kind of fell into magazine publishing, um, quite fortunately, when I, I did a BA in English and politics. And, um, how, how does one fall into something that took me many, many attempts in vain to break into it? I had to sort of bash down a wall. How do you fall into that? Well, I was clever enough not to develop any other skills. So I was only left with writing and bookishness. Um, so yeah, so I actually got a job as a very junior, editorial assistant at a magazine publishing house mm -hmm. and that's what I did for quite a number of years actually I was in magazine publishing and it was a small publisher and we did business to business and a few others we did a travel magazine and I, I sort of got to do all the editorial type things you know sort of a bit of low level writing subbing up press releases you know proofreading you know all that kind of thing and it was kind of a fun introduction to that world and I think in those days as well 
because I was kind of young and didn't have a you know a proper writing job, I would go everywhere. I'd go to the print works, or you know, I'd go to see some client who had a widget. You know, go off to the East Rand and do that. Go to the ad agency for something. So it was kind of nice exposure mm. um, to the working world. Um, but really, my my thing was really writing and and editing. And I sort of that yeah, I sort of came to it from that side, and then started writing more features and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. And how did you first get approached to write on behalf of somebody, a sort of commissioned project? Uh, one could call it ghostwriting or co-writing. How did you come to that? Were you approached? I was approached. I'd written, um, I'd written a lot of magazine work, so the publishers sort of knew me from there. And I'd also got involved in reviewing books and interviewing authors and those kind of things. And I was the books columnist at the Sunday Times for about three years, I think it was. So I knew all of the publishers, and I'd done a certain amount of work, you know, in that field. And I was approached actually to do the Mandela book. I'd also done the, the Agony Chef, the, the, the humorous cookbook, mm-hmm. um, with Pan McMillan. And I was approached to do the Mandela, um, book as part of the 100 year celebration. So that was the first commercial book, commissioned book that I did. And thereafter, I was, I don't know, I just, it sort of took off. I was just very lucky. I mean, somebody approached me to do my first ghostwriting book, which was for, I mean, again, I don't really like to sort of, go into who who I did what for but mm. yeah for quite a well-known person and that went well and I you know I learned a lot and I did that and I've and as you know I've done six now so I think once you you know people know that you can do it mm-hmm. um, and you have done it and there've been no major disasters and you haven't had a nervous breakdown or disappeared off into the <laughs> you know into the night um, yeah then then I, I've been invited to do others and it's yeah it's been really fun it's been really nice interesting work And Kate, from what I understand, it's really tight deadlines. It's not like writing a novel where you can take as long as you like because nobody's really waiting for it. The publisher said to you, I want it in three months. Am I right? Uh, Three months would be pretty tight. I I haven't done one in three months, but it would, you know, five months or maybe six months would, would be, would probably be the norm. Yeah. But it is, you know, they're often somewhat time sensitive. Um, And you know what it's like once someone's got an idea, they want it done. And talk us through the process of doing that, because again, you you can't just sit down by yourself and write the book. You're working with somebody else. Can you talk mm. us about what does that look like? Yeah, so it's 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 really a very collaborative process, and I mean, it's interesting. I've only sort of more recently thought about how you know everything I do now is collaborative almost, because my my collaborations in Katie Gale and my collaborations with the various other projects that I do. So what normally happens mostly, if I take a typical example of what I do. It would be a, say, a single person narrative. So it'll be, you know, one person who's done something interesting or has an interesting life or whatever the case may be. And we will sit down together and shape a book. And it's really interview based. The way I do it, I don't know what other people do. Um, but what I do is we ideally meet for a couple of hours, maybe once a week or once every two weeks. And I interview the person. I let them ramble quite a lot, but I kind of shape the conversation. I tape the conversation and I work from there. So, yeah, so that, so that's how it works. And it's quite, um, it's quite an interesting relationship because mm. it's quite intimate in one way. I mean, we get to know each other very well. I get to know them a lot better than they get to know me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, we spend a lot of time together and, and often 
in quite, you know, quite often people have been through trauma. You know, it's not unusual to have sort of a bit of crying. Uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 quite an intimate relationship. I mean, a few people have said to me, oh, it's a bit like therapy, which I don't really think it is. I think it's a very different role. But it has something of that quality, mm. like you're sitting in a room together and someone is telling you their story. Mm. Um, it's it, it's also, it's quite a delicate balance of personalities and relationships mm. uh, because you do need to guide them into, you know, to keep them on track. You you need to interrogate their version of their story sometimes in kind of subtle way because everyone has a way of telling their story that they know, mm. you know, mm. and you, you'll say, you know, oh, I was born here and I did this and I did that. Blah, blah, blah. And obviously I'm trying to get to something deeper or different often so yeah it's quite it's quite an interesting it's an interesting relationship and it's an interesting position to be in you know I've always thought that if I see a personality or a celebrity or or somebody that something interesting has happened to and I see that they've got a book out I look at it and I see you know is it so-and-so writing with Jane Smith and then I know okay this is as told to a professional writer who's produced Mm it or is it just personality A has now come out with their book Um, and I've always thought that if only one person's name appears on the cover and in the foreword and in the preface there's no mention of anybody else, that means nobody else was ever involved. So are you telling us that quite often there is somebody behind the scenes, a a real proper ghost who is kept completely anonymous? Well, I guess it's sort of a scale of anonymity and attribution. So on the at the front of end, and for example, the Elephants of Tula Tula, it's it says Francois Malby Anthony with Kate Sidley. If you look at some of the uh, of the other books, if you look in the acknowledgements, I'm quite extensively acknowledged. They'll say, you know, who wrote this book with, you know. Um, and then there's sort of gradations of that. Some people mm-hmm. don't want to have any other name attached mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. I think you can safely say that if somebody's main skill is, you know, kicking a rugby ball or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't know, swimming across <laughs> the Atlantic or whatever, um, they, and, and they've written a book, they, they've probably had some help with it. Um, you know, it's interesting how people respond to that, though, because, you know, we all have help in different ways. And even people who write their own stories, you know, they're often heavily edited, you know, heavily worked, you know, worked a lot closely with editors and with publishers and so on. So, you know, stories are shaped in different ways. And mm. I think that's, you know, that's true of probably all stories to a greater or lesser extent. Okay. Kate, we've talked about this before because I cannot bear it on your behalf. <laughs> But you don't mind. But you wrote a very high-profile one where you got no acknowledgement, and I got furious every time that book was mentioned. Like I went into rage every I'm time. Sorry, Gail. I know it was very hard for you. Like that's Kate's work. Um, but but you've made peace with that. Yeah, I have. I mean, I think I think it is a difficult situation. I mean, sometimes I do think you know it would be fairer to be acknowledged. But the fact of the matter is that this is my job and I chose to do that job under those conditions and that's the way it is. And I think that sometimes people sort of feel, I, mean, I, can, I can see that, that, you know, you two probably do as well, that it's almost cheating on mm. their behalf. You know what I mean? Yes. Like they, yes. they, they didn't write the book. But, you know, in a way they did. You know, we, we sort of collaborated and, 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 and sort of wrote it together. And, I mean, I'm okay with that. I am. I'm just yeah. interested to know what 
is behind that decision to mm. keep your ghostwriter completely out of the picture. Is it, I mean, uncharitably, I want to say it's ego. The person wants everyone to believe that they can kick balls through goalposts and they happen to be an extremely polished and accomplished writer at the same time. <laughs> and then more charitably, I think maybe it has to do with authenticity. Mm. Uh, people want the audience to read this book and have the perception that this is my unfiltered work. These are my thoughts on the page. There hasn't been an intermediary or if there has, that person's role was really quite irrelevant. This is me on the page and is therefore authentic. And I think maybe the reading public does receive it like that. Mm. They're sort of more impressed when nobody else's name appears on the cover. It's just interesting what's going on there. It is interesting. I think that one of the jobs that you do as a co-writer or a ghostwriter is to present the story in a way that seems feels authentic to the subject. Mm. So given that the kicker of the ball was not able to write it like that, you still want the kicker of the ball to feel that this is what, if he could write, this is what he would have written. This mm. is genuinely and authentically his story. Mm -hmm. And... You will, this also brings up the very sort of tricky issue of voice, mm. you know, writing in his voice or an approximation thereof, but somewhere between his voice and what you need to write an actual book. Because if you taped you or me and Gail talking, yakking around, that's not a book, you know, right. um, even telling our own stories. So one of the things that you, that you do as a ghostwriter or a co-writer is to create a story out of sort of pieces of information. Mm. You know, you can mm. start to go, oh, I was born in 1973 and da, da, da. You know, that's not usually very interesting. A story is more than a collection of bits of information or a collection of things that happen to a person. And that's the skill that the writer brings, mm. one of mm. the skills that the writer brings. And the other skill is to do it in a way that feels and sounds authentic mm -hmm. to them. So I guess in a way it's a compliment to the writer that that person feels that that's exactly how they would have written the book themselves. Um, it, nice it feels, it feels it. authentic to them. Right. And right. I think very often they, 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 it feels like they've written it themselves mm. in a way. You mm. Know? Mm. I think before I ask my next question, we will clarify you have never written a book by a kicker of a ball. This is an <laughs> analogy. So don't everyone go looking at all the kickers of balls who have written books and thinking Kate wrote them all. That's why I chose that as an example because it would be such an unimaginable thing for me to be writing I'm that sure book. you would do a lovely job with a kicker of a ball. Um, Kate, one of the things that I think people are curious about, and you don't have to name actual figures here, but with ghostwriting, how does it work financially compared to how it works for a, an ordinary writer? So an ordinary writer, you might get an advance and then you get royalties um, of sales of the books. Mm. I imagine it's different for a ghostwriter. Yeah. So the way that I work is that I only work for publishers. So I generally do not, you can't come to me and say, please, will you write my story? I, I just, mm. I, I don't want to do that. I, I like to be in a contractual relationship with one of the big publishers in South Africa and I know them and they know me and I trust them and I know I'll get paid and they know I'll do the job and, you know, so that makes the relationship quite a bit easier. Mm. Um, and then, you know, there's a fee. It's a, it's a negotiated fee. Um, I think in my case, I think in most people's cases, there's, there's not a royalty arrangement. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I was wondering about yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So you get a flat fee for turning the book in. Mm. 
And again, I'm then going to rage if it sells a, a great number of copies, but Kate apparently doesn't go into rage. I'm much more given to raging on Kate's farm. You'd be less enraged if you'd got a check to start with, Gail. <laughs> so how do they match a writer with the personality? Do you have any insight into how that process works? Not really. I can tell you that I'm generally only asked to do female um, subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one aspect of it. I think they probably match me more with, with women mm-hmm. for reasons of their own. Um, I like to do stories that have some meaning or relevance or something to me. Um, I really loved writing The Elephants of Tula Tula because it was issues that I cared about. I got to go to the bush. Mm-hmm. I liked the people. got to see the elephants, you know, all that sort of thing. So, I mean, when I have a choice, I prefer to do something like that. Um, and again, they're things, they're books that I wouldn't write. Um, have you ever said, no, that is one of my questions. Have you been approached with a book? I, I've been approached with one or two slightly wonky ones that didn't really come through publishers. Um but I also wouldn't do, I don't know, someone who was doing a, a sort of whitewash version of, you know, their role in state capture or the apartheid government or whatever. You know, there are lots of things I probably wouldn't do. I probably wouldn't be asked to do them either. <laughs> <laughs> I think the publishers probably understand where your line you, is. Yeah, I'm sure they know well. who would do what well and willingly. And w- if if... An exciting enough person came to you and asked you to do it privately. Do you think you could be tempted into that? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think it it, it does make the relationship a little bit more difficult because the way that I look at what I do in in these kinds of books is that I work for the publisher. The publisher has an arrangement with me and they have an arrangement with the subject. And I feel that that's kind of a cleaner arrangement than me having an arrangement with the subject. Mm. And the way that I speak to the subject about it is I will say to them, you know, I work for the publisher and I also work for the reader. And part of my job is to make a book that'll work for a reader. So you're not working for the subject in the same direct way. Do you you understand why that it's kind of a subtle difference, but it's quite meaningful to me. It's actually very important because you're not employed by the subject. Mm. So the subject Mm. can't dictate to you how you do it to an extent that they would be able to if they were actually paying directly. That's quite interesting. It's also a kind of acknowledgement of the professionalism of the task. You know, like I know how to write a book. The publisher agrees I know how to write a book. I also mm. understand reader needs and how, you know, how to how to make that book the best mm. it can be from a reader's point of view. So you're sort of somehow less directly beholden to the one person. It's, it, I think it's a better relationship for everybody, not just for me. And so your advice to a very interesting person with a very interesting life wanting a book ghostwritten would be approach the publishers and the publishers will find you a ghostwriter. I think so. I think the publisher can also get a better idea of whether that book is going to be commercially viable, whether it's really worth doing. I mean, Mm. if you want to do it because you want your grandchildren to know your fascinating life story, you know, that's a different kind of thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, the publisher is not going to do that at a higher level. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So they would have a sense of that and what kind of book might work and what kind of book might sell and, you know, all that sort of thing. So I think there's a very, there's a very important role for the publisher there. And also, you know, they bring that level of professionalism and editing and design and so on. So, you know, I think the way that I do it works probably best for me if you can do it that way or best for everyone. 
Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm interested to know whether all of these relationships have gone swimmingly or whether there have been difficult moments along the way. Like maybe your chemistry with the person was a bit off at first or there were clashes or maybe you thought everything was going great. You turned in some chapters and the subject hated it. Has has anything like that happened? Any clashes, differences of opinion? No, it generally goes quite well. I think you need to find a rhythm and a pace and a, a a sort of structure that works for the two of you because it is it is a you know it as I said before it's quite an intimate personal mm. relationship. So I guess once you find that it, you know sometimes sometimes it's a little sticky it doesn't go so well but then that's mm-hmm. true of everything you know true of your own work true of all your collaborations. Um, so yeah, I think I've been quite lucky and I think that. Um, I think maybe we've been well matched mm-hmm. and I've been lucky that people have been quite reasonable and, you know, and, and I, you know, I've done this quite a bit now, so I kind of know how it works and what to do. And I think that they respect that aspect mm-hmm. of things that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of run the process. So yeah, it's been, I've been quite fortunate and, you know, it's, it's, it's nice work. I mean, I have to say that I feel very grateful to have it. Um, there's something lovely about bringing your skills to bear on any project. Mm. And, you know, my skill is, you know, making books Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, um, and I enjoy doing that. And I enjoy, um, I enjoy working with people and bringing their stories to the fore and, and I'm able to make a, a, you know, a living as a writer between the various things that I do. Uh, yeah, so that's, I think, that's know, quite rare in South Africa to make a living as a writer. So I, I feel very grateful for it. It's, it's, it's good. And everything's fixable, isn't it? So even if you have an interview today didn't go quite yeah. as well as the previous interview, it can still be fixed mm. on the page. Mm. It's it's not a disaster. It's not like a live interview or something like that. No, and of course you produce it in, in sort of pieces, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of chapters at a time they might look at. I try not to overwork it before I've got sort of quite close to the end. I like them to see it as a process. The way that we tend to do it is sort of give them maybe give the subject a couple of chapters, mm-hmm. you know, once we've only got four or five maybe to have a look at. I don't like to um, do too much work on it before we've got a bit of bulk behind us. And I generally like to do the interviews and the writing first and then, you know, go through the book and do the, the edits and fill things in and so on a bit later. So that's the way it generally works. Can we talk about the Agony Chef now? Or mm, do you still please. have more co I'm so interested in that book. So, so the Agony Chef, which is delightful. I don't know if there's any point in me punting it because I don't know if it's available anywhere. Sadly not. I don't think so, <laughs> but it was fun at the time. It, and it sits, it sits, it sits on my recipe shelf. Um, and it probably shouldn't because it's also maybe should be on a bookshelf with, with other works of fiction. Talk to us about it. Explain what it is. Um, and also how, it, because in your writing history, it's quite a unique book, um, in that, in that it's not a collaboration. How was mm. it different for you, the writing process? So that was the first book that I wrote. And in many ways, I think it's the book that is most like me. So it's a humorous book. And it has food in it. And these are two things that I love. (laughs) (laughs) So the setup is that this woman, Delilah, solves vexing modern day problems like an agony aunt would, but with sort of sardonic advice and a recipe. Mm -hmm. And it's divided like that. So 
I invented, and I'm fairly proud of this, the idea of passive-aggressive cooking, <laughs> in which somebody wrote in, and I can't quite remember the setup now, she'd had some sort of spat or other with her husband, and she felt sort of deeply resentful about having to make food all the time. So the, the suggestion from Delilah was that, you know, you indulge in passive-aggressive cooking mm-hmm. um, to a certain extent that he, you know, that, that it's not actively aggressive, like you're not refusing to do it, but it's, you know, salad for dinner on a Wednesday night and things like that. So in the middle all, of winter. In the middle of winter, yeah. So all of those kinds of things. And yeah, it was fun. It got, it got nicely reviewed. I had fun doing it. I mean, I wouldn't mind doing another one, but I mean, I don't think there's scope for that. But it is, in a way, I think the most like my voice, um, my most sort of natural voice. And when you look back at the process, does it feel like fun or does it feel like you missed the collaboration. And maybe that's a bad question for me to ask as one of your collaborators. I won't take it personally. <laughs> I found that one quite easy to do on my own. And I think one of the reasons is that it was sort of little pieces of things. You know, there was this, there was a introduction to a section and then there was the the question from the ostensible writer in a, and then there was the answer and then there was the recipe. So it was kind of easy to manage. And, and I had millions of ideas. I didn't feel like I needed additional ideas. No dead bodies to keep track of. (laughs) I don't think there was one in that book. No, there wasn't. I don't think. I don't remember one. One thing I wanted to say about collaboration is that I mentioned that I came from a magazine background and magazines are very collaborative. Um, I was a magazine writer, feature writer and at the end, towards the end of my career as an editor. And as a magazine editor, you know, you work with writers, you work with art directors and freelancer photographers and so on. And a magazine is really put together, you know, it really does take a village um, or a, a large group of zany people to make a magazine. And I think that might be one of the reasons why I find collaboration easy and fun. Um, I, I, I've always enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed working with other people. I always, I often believe that with the right people, you know, the sum is is greater than the. the what is it? Yeah, <laughs> the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, I believe that with the right people, the whole is better than the sum of the parts. Greater than the sum of the parts. And yeah, I've been lucky in a lot of my collaborations, and I, I consider the ghostwriting and co-writing to be a collaboration as well. And speaking of the Katie Gale collaboration, can you break down for us exactly how you and Gale split up the writing? Because that's what I'm very interested to hear about. So I'm the lead writer on Mm -hmm. the project. So I Mm -hmm. do the writing, the bulk of the writing. Right. Um, We plot together. Mm -hmm. We we bring different things to the plotting. I, I think Gale's a better plotter than me. Unfortunately, both of us have like an inability to remember things. So I really feel like we should have had one of us at least would be good at that. But anyway, we, we, we do what we can. <laughs> um, we didn't know this before we started in our defense. We, I actually blame you because I thought that you were a brilliant plotter. You have well, I think when ideas. I can remember what I've done with the body <laughs> and then I'm okay. So you plot together and then you, Kate, will do some writing on it. Then does Gail come behind you and, and read over what you've written or yes. how does it work? Do you email each other? We work in Google Docs, so it's right. an open document. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will write a couple of chapters. Gail will come and read them. We'll discuss them. She might fill in something, sort out a pacing thing, whatever. And meanwhile, I'll just be carrying on with my life mm-hmm. and <laughs> writing away. 
I think what's also important that we don't track changes while we're doing that. Oh, so when I come in and fix, so, so the things I'm most likely to fix are small tweaks. And then sometimes Kate gets so excited either to get to a joke. Kate will write 10 pages to set up a joke. It's really not too much trouble. <laughs> I don't know why you keep saying that. Um, you know, she's, she's rushing to her joke or she's rushing to a very exciting part of the plot and the, the pacing. And this is what's nice about working together when you write on your own you don't pick up pacing problems until you Mm. edit Mm. but we pick it up while it's happening and then I might add a paragraph to just stretch the pacing out but I won't mark it up Kate says she can identify when I've done it I don't know if that's true. <laughs> okay, is what, it true? What, I think it is. But what we do do is we comment on, you know, we use that comment function. So I quite often say to Gail, you know, a new bit here or, you know, not sure if we're going to use this person, thought this could be a suspect or, you know, whatever, and then we'll have a little sidebar. Um, so we do we do, do that. And, and then Gail does... A, a sort of a read through and an edit at the end, mm-hmm. um, or not at the, only at the end. Um, on the way through, she tends to do the edits with the publisher as well. Right. So we do different things in the different parts of the process. It works really well. I mean, we've both found, I think, we found it quite a fun and interesting experience to to work together. When we say we plot, by the way, we don't plot the whole book. Right. I mean, this was another fantasy I had. I thought that Gail would plot the whole book and I would be able to know what happened next. Sadly, neither of us know what happens next. So that's... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but we, we have fun doing it, you know, and I feel like, you know... And sometimes... Life is short, you may as well enjoy your writing collaborations. So we have fun, we have a laugh, you know. And sometimes we try to plot the whole book, but then in the writing... Something comes up and we realize so and so is a much better murderer. Mm-hmm. Or so we've just changed a body. Mm, we have, um, yeah. We, we were very fixed on one body and then we realized that another body would be much better. So we're murdering off a different person. Okay. Um, you mm. know, that, that's the reality and of in writing. In the previous the way we book, write. we unmurdered somebody who we'd already murdered because I was like, I feel so sad about blah, blah, her name. Um, and she said, actually, so do I. And I said, I don't, I don't think we should kill her. And she said, okay, maybe we won't kill her. And then we had to go back and do another thing to her that she wasn't dead. So she's, she Badly lived. Injured. She, <laughs> she got a cough instead. <laughs> so, so she, she lives and breathes another day. Um, and the other thing that I find very fun about writing together with Gail is that I'm a very reader focused writer. Mm-hmm. I think about the reader and I want them to have a nice time. Right. I want them to have a laugh. You know, I want them to have a surprise. You know, I, I kind of, I like my reader and I want them to be happy. And Gail is my first reader. Right. Because she obviously reads as soon as I've written. <laughs> <laughs> so I often write things into, oh, Gail's going to love this. Or here's a little joke for Gail. You know, I think it's kind of a nice thing. Like I, I, I give her a little little in-joke sometimes. Mm-hmm. But with the result that there are some jokes in the KT Gail that Gail said, I literally am the only person in the world who will get that joke. <laughs> but that joke is there for us. And then we have some jokes for South African writers uh, and we readers. Do, yeah. we readers. Have done, like, not, I can't remember them now. But um, we, we the have. one is we have a very picturesque, lovely road called Hillbrow Avenue. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, we yes. do do that. Oh, yeah. In yes, the Cotswolds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also interested to know how you guys resolve conflict or differences of opinion, which leads into my other question. You can answer these two together if you like. What is the hardest thing about this kind of co-writing process? 
we don't have a huge amount of conflict. In fact, we hardly have any. I mean, I think both of us are in it to have an enjoyable writing experience. Mm -hmm. We're also quite lucky that these books have been doing well. Yes. And I think that makes you a lot easier to deal with in life. (laughs) (laughs) When things are going well. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And we're a lot more, we're sort of committed to the partnership. We're committed to the series. Um, So we, you know, we're quite invested in resolving our issues and we honestly don't have a lot of conflict. Mm -hmm. Talk about your grandmother, Kat. Oh, there's my grandmother. Yes. So I wrote this really nice character called Dora, who is my English grandmother. And uh, she died when I was little. And she owns a little sweet shop in the village. This is the character, not the character. No, not my real grandmother. Right. She owns a, she owns the little sweet shop in the village. And I wrote her in, and I said to Gail, oh, I found, "I've got a new character. She's so great. I'm so happy with her. You're going to have such fun reading her. Ha! Oh, you know, because you know I like Gail to have a nice afternoon read. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, she, and she's named after my. English grandmother. So she reads and she says to me, oh, I really love Dora. She's really great. You know, I, I think she could be the murderer. I said, are you absolutely insane? <laughs> We're not having my English grandmother murdering people. <laughs> and I so, am still a bit fixated on that plot. <laughs> and then I brought her back in this book mm-hmm. and that I'm writing at the moment. And I said to Gail, you'll be so happy Dora's back. And she says, the readers are going to be so unhappy when she starts murdering people off. <laughs> I think you must watch Dora's back. I think Gail might actually murder her one of these days. <laughs> but that is literally the biggest conflict we've had. We really don't have much conflict. We also have learned to read each other well. If Kate says we'll put that on the back burner, it means that was a crap idea and don't you dare raise it again. And I now go, okay, we'll put it on the back burner. You know, we've learned, we've learned what each other yeah. clues are. I don't know what my clue is, um, but yeah, I mean, we have. I think we have learned that, and I think we've learned a lot about the process of mm-hmm. writing together and about writing these kinds of books. So you know, we're quite. This is our eighth book together, wow. the one we're writing now. Yeah, because yeah. we wrote three in the first series, and this mm-hmm. is five in the second series. So you know, we we kind of know what works for us, and uh, yeah, I think it's it's been a really Really nice, fun partnership. I'm quite happy. And it's doing well, so we've made peace with the fact that we might be doing this for the rest of our lives. (laughs) I mean, I do sometimes feel like I'm on an absolute sort of treadmill of writing, you know, between my commercial work and the Katie Gale work and all the other things. Sort of like thousands of words coming in and out of my brain. I feel like my brain sometimes is kind of a bit broken by that. But, you know, I get back back in the saddle. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. Kate, maybe mm. with that you can explain how, you know, we have a slightly unusual publisher compared to traditional publishers, and we have very tight deadlines as a result of how they work. Maybe you can explain a bit about that. We do. So this book is published by Bookature, which is a British publisher. They were the leading and I think the earliest um, digital first publisher. Mm-hmm. So they're part of Hachette, which is a one of the giants. Yes. And they focus on a particular market of reader who read a lot. Right. The whale readers. The whale readers. Mm. Yeah. So that's what they call them. So these are people who might read two, three books a week. Mm. They mostly read on e-reader, on Kindle, or some other version thereof. And they like to read series is another 
is and another in a aspect very specific genre. They have their genre and they don't stray outside of that's it, right. usually. Yeah, that's right. Or maybe two genres or what have you. But they, they know what they want to read. They want to read a lot of them and they, you know, and they, they buy a lot of books. So the market is for the, is really geared towards those people. Mm-hmm. And most of the, most of what we sell are on ebook or audiobook. Audiobook is huge in that market as well. Mm-hmm. We do sell um, in the UK and the US. We sell print books. They're not available here because of the way that market works, unfortunately, for our South African friends. Um, so that's it's a very different way of publishing. It's a very high volume, low price. So you'll often find that there are books on special for, you know, summer reads or whatever it is, some promotion, you can get them for 99p or $1.99 or what have you. Yeah. So it's it's a very, very different kind of publishing model to what we used to here. And um, it's also, because it's so largely digital, it's quite algorithmically driven. So they can see what works. They can see, they can test different ads, mm-hmm. you know, online and say, okay, this one worked better than that one. They can test different um, cover designs. They can see who's buying what. They can offer them the, the third book in the series because they bought the second book in the series, you know. So they can reach readers in a very different way. Um, and it's been an absolutely incredible education working with them. They're very, very professional, brilliant, brilliant editors we've worked with there. And yeah, we've, I think we've both learned a lot about modern publishing from this, from this experience. Absolutely. Um, and because we're writing for the whale reader, we basically, so, so when you write for a traditional publisher, if you write four books a year, that would be a problem. It's too many books yes, for them to bring yes, out yes. in your name in a year. If Kate and I could write four Katie Gales a year, they would publish four Katie Gales a year. Um, I think they find our current output of two a year a little bit frustrating, um, that maybe we should be doing three a year. Um, so it's, it's a completely different mindset, wouldn't you say, Kate? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think we've, we've got, yeah, we've got another one to come. So we'll be doing under this contract our sixth Julia Bird. Mm-hmm. And some of the people that are our stable mates, I mean, particularly people who do the kind of more detective-y things. I mean, somebody the other day had their 17th book, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, their 17th in the series. And people are selling, I mean, some of the top people on the list are selling in the millions. Right, right. Um, over the series. So, yeah, it is a very different approach. It is a very different approach. Kate, I'm just telling you now that if we get to 17, mm-hmm. Dora is going to have to be the murderer at some point. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kate, getting back to the sort of biographical co-writing mm. for a moment, um, I'm interested in how you decide to construct the story. And I would imagine it depends on whether the person's life has been interesting or their career has been interesting or one thing happened to this person that was interesting. So do you construct it chronologically because I imagine the Mm. person tells you their story chronologically I was born in so-and-so and and then I moved to so-and-so or or do you sort of construct it episodically Um, it it, does it relate to the way a novel is constructed in any way that's such a good question and I I think that it does I think like any book that you write fiction or non-fiction however it might whatever you might be writing you're making these editorial choices of how best to tell the story so I think one of the things that we do as writers whatever we're writing um, is to think about how we construct the story where we start where we end how we structure it and so on for most memoir or biography or anything like that there's a there's a natural chronological 
progression. Right. But that doesn't mean you start with I was born in 1942 and da 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 da. Mm. Um, as you say, there are, it was a very perceptive, your, your, your way of looking at it actually, is that many people who I'm going to be working with, their backstory is useful and interesting because it talks about who they are. Mm. But you don't really want to start introducing that first. You don't want to go through like 30 years of, you know, backstory and childhood and so on necessarily before you get to the part where our fictional subject kicks the ball. Right. Um, so, so generally I would start closer to, to the kind of current action and then maybe have some other reference to, to the early part of the story. So I guess it's about finding an entry point, finding a rhythm for the story, giving enough backstory to the kind of story where the present moment is, is more pressing, um, that it makes sense of their de- decisions and sense, makes sense of what they've been doing and of their choices. Do you ever get pushback from the subject about where the story should start and what should be included? I mean, do you get people who think that their sort of nursery school life is so fascinating it, it needs to be there and you have to kind of talk them out of that? No, not it's not usually a problem. I mean, I think that people are very attached to certain parts of their life history mm. um, and to, to their story and there are certain things that people do generally want in. Um, but I think that's, that's never been something that has been sort of conflict over. I feel that it's something that, you know, one can often deal with those things quite easily and subtly and add in at a certain point what needs to be in and out. There's certain things that people want to leave out is, is usually more of an issue. And I think that's generally because they're interpersonal issues with family members or, mm. you know, work people or whatever where they don't want, um, where they where they don't want to cause conflict, and that's slightly more difficult because sometimes that mm. conflict would be useful to the story. I'd imagine that's where the really interesting stuff lies, and the mm. stuff they don't want to say. In some cases, and sometimes sometimes it's more of kind of color and texture. That you don't want to be self censoring to such a degree that that you know all of that's out. Mm. But you know, I think it's easy enough to find a balance, and I think particularly once we've established a relationship. And they trust me to tell their story and they know that I know what I'm doing. We can negotiate those points. But at the end of the day, it really is their story. And if they don't ever want to mention their mother, they don't have to mention their mother. You know, <laughs> that's the way it is. Kate, I am a little bit obsessed with process and with how much a writer writes a day. Um, and I realize I haven't asked you this yet because I actually do know the answer, but not <laughs> everybody else knows the answer. You often are juggling a few projects. Um, I've seen your spreadsheets and, um, you, you, and are, by the nature of all the projects you work on, you're under deadlines. You aren't just freely writing for your own joy. How many words do you write a day and how do you structure your writing day so that you don't have a nervous breakdown yet yet. (laughs) Um, I normally work I try to work on two projects at a time I usually have one Katie Gale and then one other project sometimes the other projects overlap a bit and then I have three and that does my head in obviously Um, so I really try and keep it to one and one and I usually divide the day up. I, I quite often do, I'm quite good creatively in the very early morning. So if I get up very early, I'll do a bit of Katie Gale writing, which I find I need my, my sort of fresh brain for. And um, then I quite often do my other job in the morning and then Katie Gale in the afternoon and evening. 
It really depends. I mean, if I'm coming up to deadline as we are now in Katie Gale, I will do the math and I'll go, okay, I need to write 25,000 words in the next six weeks or whatever. And then I will probably set my deadline like that. I mean, I probably write, I mean, I can easily write a thousand words a day on the Katie Gale books when I'm going. I tend to sort of get stuck um, and sort of put it off a bit because I'm about to start a difficult section. I don't know what to do. But once I'm writing, I can write very fast and mm. quickly and easily. And mm. so, yeah, I could write 2000 a day if I'm, if I'm going. Um, and then the other work, it really depends because a lot of that time is around the interviewing, uh, around, you know, talking to the person about what's gone in the past and editing and that sort of thing. So it's a little bit different. I'm not just sort of deciding on my own to go and sit down and write those words. But, you know, the, you know it's a good, good few, good few words a day that I can do. <laughs> <laughs> it sometimes exhausts me and I will go into the Katie Gale thinking that maybe I'll have a few hundred words to read and find that I've actually do have a lovely afternoon in front of me <laughs> because so much has been done and I get quite caught up as a reader. Um, I mean, I do, Kate is the master of, in fact, let me ask you about this. You are the master of, of the small detail telling the story. Julia Bird is always eating lovely meals. Um, the, the garden always looks lovely. The hens always are up to something, laying eggs or not laying eggs or running around with the dog. How, how naturally does that come to you? Or how much do you think, okay, I better bring a hen back. I better bring some food in. <laughs> you know, one of the things I've noticed about writing is I often, in so much as I write to amuse you and entertain you, I write to amuse and entertain myself. And those are the things that I, that's the way my brain works. I like to think about those kind of things. So I like to think about what the garden would be like, what she'd be having for tea, you know, what the dog would be doing on a hot summer's day, what would be in the garden, all those kinds of things. Um, I think those things are, you know, part of the kind of richness of creating the, the, the world and the, the scene. And they're very much important in terms of those kinds of books as well, because one mm. of the things about the cozy mysteries is that they're very location based. So this one, as you know, takes place in the Cotswolds. And, uh, you know, readers like to have that feel of place. And in fact, I, I went to the Cotswolds this year to, to do a bit of research. Because neither of us had set foot in the Cotswolds for the first four books. <laughs> I've been to lots of English villages in my defense. <laughs> so that was quite fun. So, I mean, I do think it is a really important part of the story. And it's also, you know, it's also fun for the reader. They like to see what's going on in the world. You can't just be lurching from murder to murder without any. <laughs> it puts the cozy and cozy mysteries. Those are the cozy. lovely details yeah. that the readers enjoy. Yeah, it does. It does. And makes the readers hungry yeah. because it makes the co-writers hungry. I frequently have to stop and eat. <laughs> I love writing about food. <laughs> um, Kate, you are much in demand as a an interviewer, a discussant on panels, a moderator. Um, I've, I know this because I've requested you myself Thank to you. interview me, um, for a book launch. So what would be the tips that you would give someone on how to do that well? Because we all know you do it very well. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I mean, I do think that preparation is really important. I am a bit of an over-preparer generally when it comes to um, interviewing people, uh, whether it's 
on stage or on you know on a panel or whatever i think it's really important to read the books and to think about the books and it's a lot of work i mean if mm. you're going to do a, a a panel i mean we've just had kingsmead book fair franchise book fair i mean i was on a panel with four writers right. moderating panel that's four books you have to read you know four backstories you have to know about these people and so on so it is a lot of work and um, but i think it really does pay off to actually you know do that do that groundwork it's really nice if you can have a bit of give and take and a mm. bit of um interaction between between the writers and i think also to know what audiences are interested in right um i think that people generally love conversations about writing process i find it amazing how much interest there is in that um and yeah and just and also to to let the author shine and let them you know let them have that space as well i think is quite important I think that's the most important. I think that's one of the things you're very good at. Um, I think the fatal flaw of some interviews is that they talk about themselves <laughs> instead of about the author and the author's book. There definitely are some interviewers of our gender who talk about themselves for 20 minutes before the author has a chance mm. to say a word. Um, I think I was in a panel at Franchuk where literally the interviewer spoke for 20 minutes before anybody else spoke goodness wow yeah mm. that's not and right Kate, i mean i don't know if you would agree i think that that for me that's a fatal flaw in an interviewer yes i think it is i think that you have to realize that people want to hear from the authors rather than the the interviewer generally and even if the interviewer is a very important author mm. they're not there as an author they're there as a facilitator they're there to make the other authors look good mm. i think yeah. well I, I see it as also they're there to entertain the audience and to keep the mm -hmm. conversation rolling in a way that gives good exposure to the authors but also you know people have come out in their private you know in their private time to come and sit in a bookstore at six o'clock in the evening on a cold johannesburg evening you know they want to be you know to be entertained and to learn something and to hear something and have fun and on that note kate what advice would you give to a nervous first-time author? It's their first panel or their first launch, and they're being interviewed. And we've all seen that one where you ask a lovely question, and then the author goes, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, what advice would you give them to to make it a good experience and make their books sell? Well, first of all, I think if you can try and relax a little bit. I mean, maybe have like a third of a glass of wine <laughs> and um, maybe come half an hour early and chat to the to the interviewer and have a little bit of a pre-conversation so that you both know what's coming. I think that's quite helpful because mm -hmm. I think mostly people are nervous. They either talk too much and too fast or they do the yes, no thing, which is just, just absolutely <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think those are the most important things. And just try and enjoy it. It's such a special thing. My word, like you've done the thing, you know, you've written the book and you're up there on stage. You know, it's great. Well, I love that advice. Um, Kate, we've got to the part of the interview where we like to ask people what they have been reading or watching or listening to lately that has made some kind of an impression on them. Yes, and I am prepared for this question because <laughs> I've been listening to your podcast. <laughs> and I had to write it down because two names. So I've been reading – well, first of all, I have to say that I've had a, I've had a bit of a terrible reading spate for a while. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get into things. This is about, I don't know, maybe six months ago, whatever. And you know, if you're a reader, reading is like – the most wonderful, wonderful thing. Mm. And I just realized 
how bad it was for my mental health not to be engaged in the book and how much better I feel when I'm properly engaged in the book. So I'm grateful to say that I've had quite a lot of good engaging reads. And the one that I've read most recently is called Girls of Little Hope. It's by Sam Beck Bessinger and Dale Halverson. It's quite new. It only came out in the last, I think, few days. I got a, a, a copy from the publisher. And it's a dark suspense thriller. It's set in small-town America in the 90s, and it's billed as for fans of Stranger Things, and that actually tells you all you really need to know about it. Mm. It's uh, it, it's about three teenage girls, and it starts off with a bang. I do like a book that starts off with a bang. You're right in the heart of the story before you, you know, as soon as you opened it. These three teenage girls have gone off into the woods in this, in the, uh, outside this little town, and only two of them come back. Mm. So it's immediately, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a thriller what's happened to them. It's a really good page turner. But what I really like about it is that it's a book about young girls. I think they're 15 or so. Um, so it's a book about teenage angst. It's a book about teenage friendship, which sounds a bit sort of, you know, childish in a way, but I love those kinds of books. Uh, I really found it such a nice read. And they're South African, am I right? They are South African. Sam wrote that book, Manage Your Money Like a Fucking Grown-Up, which has mm. been very, very successful. Yes. And and Dale Halverson is also a, a graphic artist, a, 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 I think graphic He works as Joey Hi-Fi. Jo- works as Joey Hi-Fi. He's done mm. some fantastic cover designs. So they really know what they're doing. Um, they both sort of quite steeped in, in, in various genres, including horror. It's a, it's a really it's a page turner and it's 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 kind of a, it's a good read i enjoyed that yeah that book landed on my desk as well recently and i've just glanced at it so far but i see the backstory of one of the girls that appears um in the blurb is that she was taken on the pageant circuit yes. by her sort of stage mommy mm. and she responded to that by getting fat yes so that she could no longer be forced to participate in pageants and i love that idea so much i can't wait to get into this yeah. book it's really good i mean they go sort of backwards and forwards in time so you get to know these girls quite well and that special time of life with all that mm. that teenage angst and that worry and that fun and that deep deep meaningful bonds that they have. I mean, it really is quite lovely. I yeah. liked it a lot. Um, I've also been reading uh, Johnny Steinberg's book, but I know you've interviewed him on your podcast, so I don't need to talk about that, the Mandela book. Um, and I've just started literally the first page of Daryl Bristow Bovey's book, Endurance, which is uh-huh. yes. brand, brand new, just in the shelves in the last couple of days. So I'm really looking forward to that. I hear great things about that. Um, and then the other thing is, as I think you probably know, I read a lot of poetry. Um, I started that Rhymeshare yes. Poetry yes, Club on I Facebook, love. which has been, you know, such a lovely source of people sharing poems that they've enjoyed. Uh, but there's a podcast that I would recommend for people who like poetry or would like to know more about it or get to know, um, new poets and so on. It's called Poetry Unbound. And the host is Padraig Otuma. I don't know if you've ever come across him. He's a poet, but also just an incredibly insightful person. He did sort of conflict resolution. He's Irish, so he's got a lovely Irish accent. Uh, he did a conflict resolution kind of work. And he's a very, very thoughtful person about the sort of human condition. And Poetry Unbound is part of that on Being Studios, which is Krista Tippett. I don't know if you're familiar with that pod- that series of podcasts. Also very good. But anyway, it's it's really lovely. So what he does is he he reads a poem, and these are all contemporary poems from all over the world. He reads a poem, he discusses it, 
partly to do with you know the structure and you know how it is but also just the kind of human feeling behind it and what it means and why it's important and you know just he's lovely 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 gentle manner and then he reads it again so you get a chance to kind of hear Understand it a it. second time knowing what the heck's going on <laughs> <laughs> so that's really good if you you know if you want to sort of learn a bit about poetry and, and they're short short i mean it's about 12 to 15 minutes the podcast anyway it's great and then the other podcast I listen to regularly and I've been listening to recently is that people I mostly admire. It comes from Steve Levitt, who's one of the Freakonomics guys. Mm-hmm. And it's always a one-on-one interview with a really fascinating person. It can be a scientist or an economist or a, you know, an arty person, you know, all different kinds of people. And he's just such a great interviewer, such a great, generous, interesting guy with, you know, he, he obviously wears an economist's hat. But he, he's just, he's very interesting. He's very good on the, on, in front of the mic. So I would recommend that as well. Well, fantastic. Those are great recommendations. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We hope that even more people buy and read the Katie Gale books, as well as your other co-writing projects. Thank you very much for your time. Thank Such you, a Kate. pleasure. It was a great honor to be invited. Thank you. <laughs> Gail, that was such an interesting conversation. I honestly don't know how you and Kate get anything done when there's so many interesting things to talk about. Well, you know, it was interesting for me because it's quite a unique position to be in. We've interviewed people we're friends with before on the pod, Mm -hmm. but this is Kate and I have a very specific kind of friendship because we work together and we talk to each other a lot. Mm -hmm. And it was such an interesting experience to get to interview her and ask her questions because normal conversation you don't sit down and start asking each other questions um, in such a deliberate way so for me it was really it was an unusual and interesting experience so what new thing did you get out of that conversation well I think that's part of it that I didn't get out in the way I normally do because Kate and I have talked about writing a lot and we know a lot about each other's writing styles and processes but the thing that I got out was a confirmation of something I have always felt to be true about myself and that is that I could not ghost write it does not sound at all attractive to me Mm -hmm. Um, and learning more about how it works didn't make me go oh maybe I should rethink this it made me go absolutely that is one of the things I will not do you know I was interested in it for years and I don't think there's space in my life for it at the moment but I still find it absolutely fascinating and what I got out of it was a lesson that can be applied to constructing all narratives which is what is the best way to tell the story? And of course, when it's somebody's memoir or biography, the temptation to be chronological is very strong. And to know where exactly to start the story and how to weave the backstory through it, that was all very interesting to me. And Kate obviously has that instinct to start in the mm. most interesting part where there is stuff happening and and not necessarily give way to that very tempting construction of starting it chronologically. And Fiona, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning today, the challenge you're facing at the moment and how do you start the story? Where do you start? How do you structure a story? And I think it is something Kate is really excellent at. I I always look forward to us starting a new Katie Gale because I never know mm-hmm. where she's going to pick it up. I know it's going to be some delicious domestic detail, yeah. but, but I look forward to that opening paragraph every time. Oh, I love that. That sounds great. 
So what is your writing advice for the week, Gail? Well, Fiona, you know, I have a terrible memory, so I'm not really sure if I've given this advice before, but I decided instead of checking, it's such a useful thing for me that if I have said it before, it bears saying again. You know, we talk a lot and I have this great interest in how many words do you write every day? You need to write every day. If you want to be a writer, you need to sit down, you need to get the writing out. One of my tricks that really works for me is stopping in the middle while you're still excited, mm-hmm. not emptying the muse for the day. So yes. you're writing well, and the temptation is you've written your 500 or your 300 or your 1,000 or whatever it is for you, but you're still into it and you're still excited, and the temptation mm. is to write until that tank is empty. Yes. And I say don't. Mm-hmm. I say stop because then tomorrow you will come back to the page so excited to pick it up again. And I really hope I haven't said that recently, but it does bear repeating. <laughs> and you, Fiona, what's your advice? I just want to say that I love that advice, and I don't think we've actually talked about it before. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to what I was saying earlier about doing my read, my first self-edit, and immediately realizing that I'd written something bad and boring. And, you know, there was a little part of my brain that said, it's fine. It's mm. it's okay. It's not as bad as you think. Just keep going. Just leave it. It's too much of an effort to fix it. And I had to override that instinct and say, no, this is terrible. You cannot leave it the way it is, but you can fix it. Mm. And the fix is, it's quite dramatic, but it's not nearly as bad as you think. Mm. And I plunged in and started fixing it. So my advice would be listen to that little voice in your head that is saying, this isn't your usual self-doubt this is a problem that needs to be fixed. Don't leave it there. Don't overlook it. If you're bored, the reader's going to be bored as well. Fix it. Everything on the page can be fixed. Oh, goodness, Fiona. I think that might be exactly the thing that I need to hear but don't want to hear at the moment. (laughs) But thank you. (laughs) So if any of our listeners have had to fix something, if they've listened to that little voice, uh, if they have found a really good way to start a narrative or had to restart a narrative or as Gail said ditch the first chapter and start with chapter two please get in touch we're on all social media and we'd love to hear from you you've been listening to another production from solid gold podcasts